0: I unfortunately don't know much about asparagus farming, so...
1: Asking the hard questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, three, two, one, third try, go. Hello and welcome to the pilot episode of the Foreign Asparagus Podcast. We're your hosts...
2: Helen. Joanna.
1: And Mateo.
2: Today, as always, the topic is Media. We're going to be talking about the fine line between sensationalism and media pressure in writing COVID wrongs, press censorship around the world, and protest journalism.
1: Okay, so before we get into it, I guess we have a couple of things to explain. Notably, I guess, is why on earth is the youth media co- podcast called Foreign Asparagus? Uh, so, Alan, explain.
0: <laughs> last time we recorded this podcast, I had written in a script using Siri, using the voice-to-text feature while I was running. So I didn't look over it super carefully before we recorded it that uh, afternoon. And in the middle of recording my segment, I realized, or I read, instead of Foreign Affairs, I had accidentally written out Foreign Asparagus. Um, And it just kind of became a joke and
2: snowballed into the actual title for the podcast.
1: We didn't have an actual title, so uh, asparagus it is.
2: And sadly, it's not really about cooking, but it could be. Who knows? We'll see. Not if I'm part of it.
1: (laughs) There may be some asparagus stories. Stay tuned.
2: Yep. Okay, second, who are we? Well, we're all writers for this By Teens Fourteens Teens online magazine, but this podcast is an independent endeavor, and we are not associated with this publication in this podcast. And uh, to preserve the confidentiality, we are all just youths.
1: <laughs> youths. Youths. <laughs> with like curly hyphens around it. Yeah. <laughs> um okay the foreign asparagus podcast will be out monthly-ish initially and we'll cover the media uh, in particular teens in the media as well as general youth culture Uh, there'll be discussions interviews reportage q a's that kind of thing so without any further ado on with the podcast If you want to read a newspaper in New Zealand, you're not exactly spoiled for choice. There's the New Zealand Herald, the only really national paper. A site called Stuff NZ is the Herald's biggest rival, and it operates online through a staple of regional papers. That's pretty much it for the paper offerings. For TV news, there's One News and News Hub, and RNZ and Talk ZB rule the radio. The point? New Zealand's media scene is small, so it can't afford to be overly partisan or sensationalist because a few sites have to cater to New Zealanders of every stripe. Despite this, coverage of a scandal over New Zealand's border isolation processes several months ago has sparked an ongoing national debate, and has had some claiming the media crossed the line into scaremongering. Here's the lowdown. On June the 8th, New Zealand ended all restrictions bar, bar border controls. It was the 17th straight day with no new COVID cases. But eight days later, bad news broke the virus' free streak. Two returning New Zealanders released early from managed isolation to visit a die, dying relative met with friends in Auckland on the way to Wellington. There, they tested positive for COVID. The issue was that the two New Zealanders had been released early from quarantine without returning a negative COVID case, as should have been the case under ministry protocol. Further stories soon flooded the media about botch-ups at New Zealand's border facilities. In one example, a journalist reported that people who had just about served their 14 days in quarantine were hanging out in the smoking rooms with others who had just arrived at the facility. The response from the national media to these new cases was loud and angry. Commentators alternated between words like fundamental failings, shambles, and a disgrace. Eventually, the health minister resigned. But even as headlines asked, should heads be rolling? Others read more along the lines of some of the media need to calm down. A debate over the role of the media arose. Had the media hype played a crucial role in pressuring government to fix the border botch-ups through its relentless coverage of the slip-ups? Or was it unnecessarily undermining public trust in an otherwise competent government? and giving people a false sense that community transmission was happening. In other words, had the slip-up been played for clickbait? As always, it seemed a bit of both. The media certainly had legitimate concerns. There were plenty of stories of mismanagement. The public wanted to know how many other attorneys were let out early without testing. The media pushed for answers and got them. 51 out of 55 were not tested, as should have happened. All good journalism. But, on the other hand, there was some sensationalism. It might have been hard to catch it from all the talk of chaos at the border, but there were only two women who tested positive, out of all the returnees to be let out early. In addition, the media said a lot about a great public anger at the news of the two women. (laughs) A tsunami of anger, one columnist wrote, and yet no polls to properly gauge public sentiment had been conducted. The national media also spread unfounded claims from from the opposition that a homeless man had joined the queue into managed isolation and got a free hotel stay for two weeks. Or that two women had a kiss and a cuddle with the friends they met on the way out of Wellington. A Ministry of Health uh, investigation of CCTV found no evidence of the homeless man story. The Ministry confirmed that such close contact had not happened. There are also cases where crucial information was kept from the headlines. One headline on the Herald Online read that thousands of people had left isolation without a test. Only on further clicking did you discover that these people had been through the mandatory 14 days of isolation, so the risk of transmission was low. The media often repeated claims from the opposition that there was community transmission ongoing. A month later, no such transmission had been found. So, what are the takes here? Well, in the fallout of the testing incident, the government instituted several strict reforms. The military would oversee the facilities. Director General of Health, Dr. Ashley Bloomfield, guaranteed no one would leave without being tested. Lately, no new stories of mismanagement have arisen, though several attorneys have broken out and been arrested. Hayden Donnell from RNZ Media Watch had this takeaway. Those reforms might be enough to make sure New Zealand avoids a COVID-19 catastrophe in the coming weeks. If that's the case, we can thank good, persistent reporting for making us all a little bit safer, even if it came at the cost of Bloomfield's halo. On the other side of the debate, journalist Glenn Johnson took this view. The inescapable inescapable conclusion is that the media willingly colluded with the opposition's attack lines, relying on the fear and scandal that generated to attract eyeballs. Clickbait, as he wrote in an opinion piece on Al Jazeera. In mid-August, after a streak of over 100 days of no community transmission, the virus receded in New Zealand. The government announced on Tuesday 11th that a family in Auckland had tested positive and that no links had been found so far to the border. Auckland returned to lockdown, and the opposition launched into familiar attack lines, blaming failure on the part of the government border facilities and suggesting the government had known about the new cases for a while. In the weeks since then, the outbreak was gradually quashed. The national debate now just as much about the lockdown and COVID as it was the media's coverage of it.
0: I think it's really interesting considering the limitation of choice in terms of media in New Zealand. I think in the United States, we almost have the opposite issue. There is so much news for a lot of people, it feels like there's too much going on. There's too much coming at them that it's impossible for them to keep up. A lot of people, when I talk about, you know, I love the news, I love journalism. They're like, oh, but how do you even find the truth? Or how do you even know what to read? There's so much, like we don't even know how many cases there are. There's like so much because there are so many publications and people tend to pick the one that feels more comfortable for their political standing or for their argument. In the United States, we're seeing, I mean, obviously we haven't had the same sort of limitation of cases, um, but with so much media, a lot of people are just tuning into what makes them feel more comfortable.
2: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think the United States is similar in the sensationalism department um, in that a lot of different media outlets... um, it, it doesn't matter if they're right-leaning or left-leaning. A lot of them do kind of blow up any sort of new news um, to the point where a lot of stuff does get over-exaggerated and is a little bit difficult to fully comprehend. So that's, I think, another reason why so many people now are distrustful of the media is because everything can't be breaking news, but somehow it is.
1: Um, it was it was John Stewart or something who said uh, TV cable news is, is built for 9-11 and nothing else, and
0: mm-hmm. so they have
1: to turn everything else into 9-11. Um, yeah, I was talking to a journalist from the New Zealand Herald called Jared Savage a couple of months ago, and he was saying there are just literally not enough people in New Zealand for the media to be right-wing, because you know, it would just alienate half the population, um, so they have to kind of be um, critical of both sides.
0: I think that's actually like a really positive um, in terms of how your media is because I I know media distrust is at an all-time high um, here in the U.S. and it's like clearly becoming an issue especially during a pandemic um, because people feel like they
2: can't believe anything that's being reported. Right and there was like a couple I mean decades ago there was like one reliable you know U.S. news source and in the, com- in the coming decades since that time, there have been so many different outlets that have adopted different biases, and it has become a lot more difficult to get a reliable news source, which is also why a lot of people now are more distrustful of the media.
1: Yeah, here was um, one survey in April that found that in New Zealand, trust of um, the media is at 53%, which sounds bad, but um, when you look at the UK, it's 40%. Australia, it's 38%. In the US, it's just
0: 32%. And now I think that a good transition into my segment from Mateo's is remembering the Spanish flu in relation to the media. At the time in the United States, it was incredibly illegal to question the government in almost any way. Almost any form of journalism could be classified as libel. So there were very few reports on the virus and what the government was actually doing to handle it. This was happening around the world, and one of the only nations that was truly reporting on the disease was Spain. This is because Spain was one of the only nations in Europe that was neutral during World War I. But that's how it became known as the Spanish flu, and a lot of people have pointed to similarities regarding how people wear masks and are spending a lot of time outside. But I think that's something that really needs to be remembered is the way history is recorded through journalism. The way those of us in the media handle the pandemic will have lasting consequences for the future around the world. I think one of the most concerning things we're seeing occur internationally is a complete infringement of press freedom, whether that's the suppression of the internet in Belarus as a way of quelling protests or limitation of social media in Turkey. There is a big rise in using the media as a way of enabling authoritarian regimes. So to start in the Philippines, a Manila court found journalist Maria Reza guilty for criminal libel. Uh, Reza had founded and edited the prominent publication Rappler, which was seen as pretty much the last remaining quality news source in the Philippines. And this was part of a very focused anti-media campaign on President Duterte's part. Then in Hungary, the government has assumed even more control of publications, leading to the firing and quitting of many editors and journalists. Slovenia is starting to mirror this by rearranging funding. It makes it very difficult for writers to cover stories without bias or fear when the government is controlling your funding and security. There is some foreshadowing that this may occur in Poland, as we saw the re-election of their far-right President Duda, who has repeatedly launched brutal um, attacks on just about anybody, from the press to the LGBTQ community to Jewish people. Um, Then in Poland, we saw during the election season, their mayor, Trabowski and President Duda had each opted to present and speak on completely separate media networks, because they each believed that different networks had bias and interference, and it was just generally demonstrating a really strong rivalry, not only between the two candidates, but between the publications. Then in Hong Kong, arrests were made of 10 media-related sources, and many U.S. journalists were already removed from the country. Jimmy Lai was arrested, and he's a massive media mogul in the country. He owns Apple Media, which is kind of the final free media frontier in Hong Kong, after the South China Morning Post was bought out by Alibaba, which is often considered to be the Chinese equivalent of Amazon. The arrest of Lai is not only very concerning for the publication, but it's very symbolic. China's new national security law went into effect at the end of June, and now any form of, quote, secession undermining terrorism or collusion, end quote, is illegal. So essentially, any anti China or pro democracy sentiments can get people in serious trouble, which would limit journalism. In late June, we saw funding frozen at some of the biggest state-run media outlets from the United States government fired. So that's Radio Free Europe, which is also known as Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia, Office of Cuba Broadcasting and Middle East Broadcasting Networks, which all form the U.S. Agency for Global Media. Two top officials at Voice of America, which is another section of that agency, also promptly resigned after the appointment and confirmation of Michael Pack as CEO of the agency. Michael Pack is a friend of Steve Bannon, and while Breitbart could certainly be a separate episode for us, Pack's appointment raised red flags for many people, especially as the Office of Cuba Broadcasting was already under scrutiny for publishing anti-Semitic and biased content. So, Pack set off alarm bells for some, as they were concerned by the suspicion that Pack may shift the way the Trump administration is reported on around the world, especially after he fired the heads and replaced them with very conservative pics of his, including Bethany Cosma and Jonathan Alexandra, for example. Other than PAC, who has a background in directorial work, none of these appointees have any sort of media or broadcasting background. The thing that connects them all is their loyalty to conservative causes and the Trump administration. An appellate court temporarily blocked some of these appointments to the board, but the only body that can legally make the decision on this matter is Congress. The removed officials from these departments have now begun to sue the agency, claiming that President Trump was attempting to sway media coverage through Voice of America. Senator Chris Murphy on the Foreign Affairs Committee has proposed legislation to make any form of political pressure on journalists at the Voice of America illegal. Either way, concerning the way these sources report around the world, often in places where there isn't necessarily a free press, it's very frightening that a Trump loyal voice is controlling the narrative. These are supposed to be completely nonpartisan sources, but the United States has consistently been slipping in Reporters Without Borders, Press Freedom Index over the past four years, and it's not happening in isolation. So I think that's something that's really important to keep in mind when people make these arguments like, oh, well, I mean, it's only happening in the US and it's not impacting people in other nations, or at least we're not hurting anyone else. The very concept of fake news has caused irreversible damage to the media systems around the globe. But as the United States media has become less and less trusted and further suppressed, we're seeing international range of consequences. And I think that's something really important to consider. The United States made itself so important in international affairs. So when things disrupt at home, Things can collapse in many ways in other places.
1: Media distrust of the U.S. outlets. There's cases here where particularly connected to the bit I was talking about where people will be like, oh, our media is, um, you know, blowing our couple of cases out of proportion. And uh, it's not like the New York Times or something where everything's more uh, re- reported less sensationally. So, like, there's plenty of people here who subscribe to, to U.S. outlets and, and look up to that which is interesting.
0: Yeah, I think it was really concerning to me when I started looking into this, that an agency that controls how media is viewed around the world is slowly changing um, or very quickly changing, honestly. Um, And a lot of people don't even seem to really notice because a lot of these sources don't report in the United States. So I think the fact that it's happening outside of the country, a lot of people are able to just kind of ignore it like oh well it's not really happening here they don't even know about it
2: Yeah, yeah and it's interesting to see I think like the United States in general how much they control in the media around the globe like I mean, personally, I wasn't really aware of this, but it's amazing to see that such a large country with so much power over so many different aspects of global economy or the global trade or anything like that has so much leverage on what can get published and what can't. And I think that's really interesting for a country that really promotes like lack of censorship and things like that. When Omar Jimenez was arrested for covering protests in Minneapolis, press freedoms took a turn for the worse in America. His arrest was one of the first times many people saw journalists getting arrested on live television. Though Jimenez continued to show his press pass to police, he was ignored before he and his entire crew were chained. Jimenez was released within the hour, but his arrest is just the first of many. Since then, hundreds more have been arrested for just covering the protests. Journalists around the United States have been tear gassed, chased, and chained. Some have even fallen victim to paper or rubber bullets and have been severely injured from these protests, not by crowds, but by law enforcement. When journalists have press passes, they are entitled to safety. They aren't there to cause harm or even to march, only there to cover whatever is going on. However, mounting tensions between reporters and law enforcement mean many still aren't being protected. Their fundamental right to report, ensured by the United States Constitution, is being violated. For a country with a commitment to maintaining free press, the hundreds of arrests and injuries are alarming. They have occurred in many major cities. New York City, Oakland, Portland, and Seattle are just a handful of cities where journalists have been taken into custody. And when journalists are shot at, injured, or chained, law enforcement constantly makes excuses. Despite journalists frantically waving their press passes as police shoot, officers can just say that they were intermixed with the crowd and craft excuse after excuse to keep targeting journalists. In press freedom, the United States ranks lower than many developed countries, coming in 45th place. For a country with a free press ingrained in its Bill of Rights, that position is extremely low. The distrust for the press has grown tremendously in the last few years, as United States President Donald Trump furthered his fake news mantra to crowds across the country. His beratement of journalists, from his rallies to his COVID-19 briefings, have made people question journalists and their credibility. But this is far from what should happen. Journalists serve a key purpose in acting as communicators between the government and the people. By constantly questioning their credibility, Trump undermines a system that has preserved democracy in America since the late 18th century. The president sets an example for everyone else. If people can watch him berate journalists on live television with no consequences, they walk away thinking they can do it too. That mindset becomes much more dangerous when these individuals are armed with paper bullets or pepper spray. And while we all scorned over Omar Jimenez's arrest, there weren't any changes implemented. Jimenez's arrest made the biggest splash since he was captured on live television. But cases of journalist abuse have only continued to rise with the protests. Law enforcement officials need to school their staffs on the importance of press freedom. The American people should be angry because they deserve to see what is happening during the protests. Hurting the individuals who are responsible for communicating the truth means blocking the American people's rights to knowing what is happening around them. Journalists are victims, not the enemies and during protests journalists are also being limited from the other side. Major media companies in the United States prevent their reporters from marching and standing for social justice issues, While it's common practice for journalists to abstain from voting or involving themselves in political campaigns, many are restricted from marching in support of gun rights or diversity issues, such as Black Lives Matter. So even if they wanted to, there would be no way for them to march in these protests. So don't let law enforcement or the president fool you. Journalists aren't there to spread mantras. They're there to cover what's going on. That's it for me, the tear
0: gassing of peaceful protesters, just that image, so that President Trump could walk across the street and take a photo op at a church, that's just something that's going to stay with me for forever, the rest of my life. I think it also just really signifies how important media perception is, because this was all so that he could get across the street to take a photo, so that he could shift the way that he's being seen in the news and from his Twitter followers. Um, And I think the fact that there was a limitation of journalists um, and their ability to report is just another strong statement of how dangerous things can get without a free or a fair press. <music> Thanks for listening to this month's podcast. We hope to see you next time.
1: Oh, question. Does anyone actually like asparagus?
2: I do. I'm <laughs> okay.
0: Do you I'll like get. asparagus?
2: He's, He's like, like no. I'm just like a nod though.
0: I if it was like Brussels sprouts, where some people like eat it and some people, I do. Yeah, like um, in an air fryer. Friend school stuff?
1: owns an oh, asparagus that. farm, and they they really? just bring asparagus in every so often. Just
2: wow, that's so cool. But then now, like if we ever meet up, we're gonna be eating like asparagus. <laughs>